Hello, and welcome back to this edition of the John G. Moore Podcast. Thanking our sponsors right off the bat, Abbey Media, abbimedia.com. They provide the website, which is, if you want to reach me, thecountrywriter.com. Also, thank the Genesis Group and First Eyes. Highway accidents, fires, medical emergencies. When responding to these situations, every second counts and lives hang in the balance. Introducing the ultimate crystal ball for first responders. It's called the First Eyes Drone System. Putting First Eyes on the scene so emergency personnel can respond faster, better informed, saving more lives. The drones are dispatched instantly and autonomously, flying at a mile a minute. They're sending clear live video, detecting hazardous gases, giving perspective and insight when every second saves lives. So remember, you'll be seeing and hearing more about them soon, called First Eyes. First I-Z is how you spell it. want to welcome to the microphone from my old stomping ground, southwest Arkansas, Paul Mack himself, Gary McWilliams. Hi, Gary. Welcome to the mic. Good to be here, John. Thank you. Tell me where you live exactly. Caddo Gap, is that it? Yep, Caddo Gap. The, it's right here in southwest Arkansas, not too far, um, just west of Hot Springs. It's kind of a resort area. An und- I'll call it an undiscovered resort area. We have a lot of tourists that come up from Texas and Louisiana because this is the first bit of clear water, clear running creeks and mountain views that they get to. And a lot of them just stop and go no further and kayak and find a little bed and breakfast or cabin to rent. I grew up in Ashdown. How far is that from Ashdown? I think Catagap is about two hours from Texarkana. Ashdown's just this side of Texarkana. Is that right? Yeah, Ashdown's about 15 minutes north of Texarkana. So probably be about an hour and 45 minutes. You have a, a store in Caddo Gap. It's the Mercantile. Tell us tell us the name of your store and tell us where you're located. It's uh, Gap Mercantile, and it's uh, it's really the only business in Caddo Gap. You're not going to have any problems finding it. It's right on the little main, uh, what, what used to be Main Street. Uh, when, the high, when the highway came through in the 50s, it bypassed the town. A lot of these little towns get bypassed, but you can kind of still see the main section from the highway over there. And a lot of people just find the buildings so quaint that they say, we got to go down this road and see what these buildings are about. And they end up going right past the mercantile. On down, there's an Indian statue. Uh, that's kind of one of our claims to fame. There's an Indian statue that was erected in uh, 1936, and it commemorates supposedly as far uh, west as Hernando de Soto got with his expedition. Some There's a controversy there. Some say de Soto... Uh, didn't get this far himself, but his expedition did. And they met up with some fierce uh, Indians, uh, the Tula tribe, and had a battle here. Uh, A lot of his men had diaried about, had written in their journals about camping in a big place where they met some fierce Indians, and the men and the women were fighting against them. And they said they had camped close to where the other hot springs were. I don't know exactly how they worded it, but Catagat, just right up the the river, is just right beside the town here, and about a mile uh, downstream there is, um, sometimes you can find it in cool weather. If you wade out, there's a a very warm hot springs that kind of bubbles up. It's now in the middle of the river. It used to be on the bank. So that's one of the only other warm springs other than the hot springs in hot springs. So that's why people were led to believe that DeSoto's team made it here. 
So there's the statue down there, and then there's the old Gap Mercantile, which I'm sitting in right now. And this building was built in 1932, but only because the previous store that sat in this location burned that year, and they rebuilt it the very same year. And so it's pretty much it pretty much stayed open. It was built as a uh, as a general merchandise store. It would have groceries and uh, sundries and fabric. Uh, shoes, overalls, everything from plow points to harness and everything. The further back in the store, the further back you'd see nails and bolts and horse harness and things like that. A lot of the original items are still in here. We have the original counters, the candy count. One of the candy counters is still here, paper dispenser and other little knickknacks. There's even over here in the corner, there's a, a pair of crutches that were on loan to anybody in the town who broke their leg or uh, sprained their ankle. So they're the famous Catagap crutches. There was even a movie shot here. It wasn't a real great movie, but The White River Kid was the name of the movie. It had uh, Antonio Banderas, Randy Travis, and uh, Bob Hoskins, I think. And it was shot here in about 2002, 2004, somewhere in there. There was one little scene where Teddy, the owner, uh, played himself. He was just selling something to the, one of the actors. And so it's got it's got quite a little history. This so now it was closed for a number of years, and uh, two owners ago it was remodeled. And the back is a is an apartment, and we that's one of the reasons we bought the building was uh, to rent the cottage out to vacationers and tourists to the area. So we've got a little Airbnb going in the back where you can stay in a genuine mercantile, and then you can come around to the front, come in and get a moon pie or a glass bottle soda with real cane sugar in it or retro candy. Uh, my wife is selling fabric uh, for quilters. We have t-shirts, hats, toys, uh, old-fashioned toys, things you kind of hard to find these days. I got a little replica of a old-fashioned grocery store over here. So it's kind of a mix between a museum and where you come and get your news uh, you listen to the old people out on the porch sitting on the in the rocking chairs talking about the current events or you can just uh, relax with some retro candy and a soda so i have to ask you this is the litmus test do you carry blackjack gum yes as a matter of fact it's right here okay you passed yep. <laughs> that that was always the litmus test my father loved that stuff so your name is Gary McWilliams, which I would assume is where the Paw Mac comes from, but you are not the original Paw Mac. So let me let me just preface what we're going to talk about, and uh, we kind of got out of order, but that's my fault. So I ran across your Farmhands Companion YouTube channel a few years ago, and you teach sustaining yourself with what you have the way that my grandparents and great-grandparents did because they had no money and everything came from the land. You're doing things the old-fashioned way. Tell me about the original Paw Mac and why you started this and exactly, I guess, start by telling us what, what your mission is by having this farmhandscompanion.com and the YouTube channel. Well, I guess the uh, dirty little secret is that Farmhands Companion is my underhanded way of combating socialism. Because the way I look at it, uh, if, I can, if I can show a guy who's building things with the work of his own hands and enjoying himself and enjoying the fruit of his labors, maybe it's a, a kid watching, maybe it's a young adult, 
that's watching and uh, maybe he's tied to the city. He's got a job where doesn't have much property. He's not able to build a garden, but he keeps he keeps all that locked away in his mind and enjoys watching it. And then one day, maybe he decides, you know, I'm tired of this. I want five acres, and he buys five acres, and he thinks, so well, I need a shed. I, I think I'll try building it like I saw that guy build a shed, and he starts working on it, and then comes a knock at his door, and it's the uh, county executive saying that'll be $500 for a permit for that shed you're building. That's the day he becomes a conservative. Absolutely right. I can relate to this because in 2003, we left what I call the city, 100,000 people. We lived in Tyler. And I, for a number of reasons, just kind of wanted to get back to where I had been when I was younger, which was in a less populated area. So I told my wife, I said, I want to, I want a house at the end of a dead end road on 10 acres in the middle of nowhere. And two years later, she called me and said, you need to get out here now. I came and I looked at it. We bought it three hours later. It was not 10 acres. It was five. And I am so glad it's only five because <laughs> you, you think you want something. It's like your eyes are bigger than your stomach, you know? And so um, I can completely relate to that, but we, not to the degree that you have done on your channel. I mean, I don't like harvest the trees and all that, but I would love to attempt it. And I'm actually going to try and do the pole barn. Don't you have a pole barn book? Yes, sir. Building an old-fashioned pole barn. So my pole barn that was here when I got here is falling down. That's going to be my next project. Everybody, he's got a book on how to build a pole barn, and it's on your website, farmhandscompanion.com, right? That's right. And uh, you can also go to the... YouTube channel, Farmhands Companion, and uh, there's several videos. There's a whole series of videos about the pole barn by itself, so you can watch it being built. If you're somebody who likes to do things by watching, you could go there and just see exactly how it was done, pretty much step by step. The book has a lot more detail, but you can see pretty much everything you need to see by watching. I'm actually re-watching the one that you did on how to build your own chicken house. It would be nice if I could finish that one. <laughs> <laughs> I've gotten to where the roof is on, and I was just thinking about that today. I've got to, that's the, one of the things I'm in the middle of right now. I'm building the chicken yard and then putting the chicken yard fence up. And for the house itself, I've got to put in roosts and uh, chicken nests. So that's what I'll be shooting next. Talk about the original Palm Mac, why you adopted the same name. Give us a history of where this originated. And this is a ton of work you're doing to make these videos and do these books and make the music that goes behind the videos. I'm, as somebody who does this kind of work for a living, I'm, I'm honestly pretty stunned that you do that and you preach, you pastor a church and you own a mercantile and you still work. It's, it's impressive. So tell us about the, the story. Okay, well, the original Paul Mack, his name was Leon McWilliams, and he's my daddy's uh, daddy, and he and his wife, my grandma, we called her Nanny. Her name was Annie um, McWilliams, and they together owned 40 acres that she had inherited from her father, and that was the 40 acres that me and my parents and my brother and sister grew up on. Paul Mack, back in the day, he had farmed that with his own hands. He uh, used mules. He preferred smaller mules, but he, he had a pair that he would farm with. And he was sort of a jack of all trades. He could do just about anything. And one of the words that comes to mind is resourceful. And 
It's one of my favorite words. It's one of my favorite concepts. And our lives only overlapped by about five years. I was five years old, and I remember very few things about him. He was a very quiet man. He didn't speak loud. He was very gentle and very soft, but that impressed me, how he had such big, rough hands and was so gentle. And so I grew up on his farm, and when I would go visit my grandma, when she lived in the house that he built, I would walk around their old farm there, and I would climb up in the barn, and I would walk around the old chicken house, and I would walk in his truck shed, and I would just, in his well house, and his blacksmith shop, and I would just look at all the, the buildings that he had built and the things he had done and just try to imagine and daydream all the things that he had accomplished there. A lot of the things he built, if you looked at them and examined the buildings, they were basically what, what you call slab wood. It was It's wood that, uh, that a sawmill disregards. You know, they're out for the lumber and they cut off the sides of a log and those are the slabs and they might be paper thin on one end and three inches thick on the other. Well, he would take those and build buildings out of them. It was just so impressive that, you know, even scrap pieces of metal I've got in a shadow box in my office. I keep some of his mementos. And one of the things that he made was a fence stretcher and he made it by heating up horseshoes and changing their shape and attaching them to chains. He was just so resourceful. He could just take trash laying around and then build something out of it that would be usable for years. That impressed me even as a young person. And I guess I, I kind of locked it away in my head. And as I got older, my interest lay mainly in uh, music. I started playing guitar at a young age. My brother had been in a band and he played. He was very musical. My sister's very musical. And so I kind of took after it too and, you know, went the way of, you know, rock and roll. And as a believer, I thought, well, I want to do Christian rock music. I want to produce music. And so as I got past the high school years, I decided I wanted to pursue a degree in music and ended up at Memphis State and studied commercial music and recording technology. And the only reason I went to out, out of the state is that at the time in the 80s, in the mid 80s, Arkansas didn't have a commercial music program that covered uh, recording technology technology. So I was able to go to Memphis State and uh, they had a program where I didn't have to pay out-of-state tuition. So I got my degree there and in the middle of getting that degree I began working for Adrian Rogers who was a a well-known radio and TV evangelist. He was during the 80s the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I started working for his ministry editing his sermons and worked my way up to the radio production manager there. I stayed there for 19 years at the ministry. And in the middle of that time, my wife and I had decided to, um, what we were living in Midtown Memphis, and I just couldn't take it anymore. One of the things I learned while in college and living there in town was that I was not a town person. And so we were living in an apartment, I remember having a, I was just, all I was doing was gaining weight and watching Star Trek at night on TV. And so I thought, I got to, I got to plant a tomato or something. So I planted tomato in a big pot and set it on our back step and grew it. And it, it got to have one big, nice tomato on it. And then a squirrel ate it right when I was fixing to eat it. And so I said, this isn't going to do, we're going to have to find, I want a farm. I want to buy some land. So we looked around and bought 45 acres in the county, Fayette County in West Tennessee. And that's where you see a lot of the footage that's on the show. That was the first farm that I built. And as I started building it, in the back of my mind, I thought, I don't I don't just want a modern 
farm. I want to do this with some style. If, if I'm going to do this, I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy looking at it as much as using it. And I would go to these old um, living history uh, museums where they would have recreated farmhouses and a lot of buildings that were moved onto the property and restored. And I, I just wanted to live there. I mean, I, you'd have to drag me out uh, holding on to the grass. I didn't want to leave. And I thought, man, I want to have a place like this one day. I would remember Paul Mack's buildings and his barns, the way he built them and the way they looked and how he built them. And so then I became a student of, well, how do you build these things? And so I, sometimes I'd just go in an old barn and sit and stare at the rafters and what they must have done first to put those things together. I was not a builder, but I wanted, I had a need. I needed a barn. And so I started slowly doing those things on the farm and building it up from scratch. And I built it. I built my fencing, a lot of cedar poles that I pulled out of the woods. Uh, we had cut a bunch of logs, and I had a neighbor come over with his Belgian draft horses and pull those logs out, take them to the mill for me, brought the lumber back, and I started building that first pole barn and agonizing over how do I build a structure that won't fall on me and my kids one day and hurt us. And so I came up with a, a way that one man could basically build a large structure and not be too over encumbered with it and it worked very well so I started adding other buildings and building the garden and all the time I was thinking I wish I could show this I wish somebody could have been here to see all the fun that was that I was having as I was building this thing and I guess in the back of my mind that's where the farmhands companions started happening because I thought what if I had a show where I could film this and I really didn't know what direction it should take I kind of wanted a comedy show, but I, I wasn't a good enough writer to come up with enough plots. So I thought, well, maybe I'll shoot a pilot episode. I'll write a script, and it was going to be on corn topping, which is an old way to cut the top off corn to use it as fodder for animals. I thought, that's simple. I'll shoot. I'll write a show about that, and I'll shoot it and put it together, and then I'll start shopping it around. At the time, the RFD network was kind of a hot item, and I thought, I'll shop it around a network. Maybe they'll pick it up. I thought, well, I don't know if I really want to do public broadcasting, but we'll just see what happens. So I, I shot all this footage and then put it in the computer, and I started looking at it. And I, was, I would write out myself cue cards, and so I was speaking to the camera. I got so excited, I put it in my computer, and I started looking at it, and I thought, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. It's not funny. <laughs> it's not interesting, and I look, like, I look stupid. So I got so frustrated, I just put the whole thing away for a while. And uh, I had spent like a year or two trying to develop this. So I put it all away. I said, forget it. I, it's too hard to come up with something. I'll have to edit it to make it exactly the time frame that TV would need. Well, about that time, you know, YouTube is coming along and is growing. And I couldn't put the idea away totally. It just kept coming back in my head. So then I thought, well... What about this YouTube? I can make these shows any length I wanted. I don't need an advertiser. I just pop it up there. I started going down that road, and I created the uh, Farmhands Companion website. The idea was for that the videos would draw people to the website where I would have ads and, and sell ads and so forth. As it turned out, the people who watch videos and the people who are watch video blogs and the people who read blogs are two completely different sets of people. So I started mainly focusing on the videos, but I'm kind of a slow producer. I end up, I, I don't remember, I've got about 23, I think right now, 23 video. Uh, there's several videos, but only 23 actual episodes. 
I think 43,000 subscribers. So it, it, it is showing that people are interested in watching it, even though there's very, very few videos. There's a lot of people that have a whole lot, you know, twice as many subscribers, three times as many subscribers. But those are the homesteaders that are putting out, you know, two and three videos a week. And I'm only putting out two and three a year up to this point. I'm trying to increase that, but it's, it's kind of hard doing all that I'm doing and keeping afloat. I'll say this. I watch the videos of the homesteaders and I watch yours and I can be patient for three a year because yours are that good. Oh, thank um, you. You're welcome. By the way, you're listening to the John G. Moore podcast and Gary McWilliams, better known as Paul Mack, farmhandscompanion.com. Uh, he also has the same title on his YouTube channel. Those listening need to understand that when they watch these videos that you are putting out, you are doing every repositioning of the camera, setting up every shot, you're acting in the videos, you produce the music for the videos, you edit the videos. The amount of work that you put into this, I, I can't emphasize enough to those listening how hard what you do is, because I've seen it done. When I realized, it hit me one day when I was watching one of your videos, I went, I bet he's doing this by himself. It never occurred to me. I thought somebody's got to be running camera. I will say that I do have a support group. I have a family that I love dearly. My wife is my best friend. I have four daughters. They do, from time to time, they do help out on difficult shots. There was one, and the show is also a comedy, in case you hadn't noticed. Very funny. There's a lot of sight gags in there and, you know, exploding tillers. There's one of those where we were doing the tiller, the the very end of the show and it's a real tiller that I've you know it just appears that it's been homemade from parts uh, but it still functions it still works and from time to time explodes with pyrotechnics or whatever and there was a shot I was working on it and couldn't find the right wrench and had to run inside to get a wrench and while I ran inside the tiller uh, takes off without me and crashes into a fence and then I could just come out and stare at it to make all that happen That took all my daughters out there One of them was having to catch the tiller so it actually didn't knock down a fence and the other one was Holding fishing line so that she could trigger the Mechanism to make it run and then the other one was operating the camera So there are times where it's a family affair. What did they think when you told them? Oh, by the way in addition to being a minister you know, doing everything else I'm doing, I'm going to do a TV show on YouTube. Okay, well, that was that was tricky. And when it first started, the girls were fairly young. This was quite a while back when I was thinking it through and it occurring to me. It must have been, I think it was 2008, and they were quite young, but there was my wife. My wife is a very intelligent person, very thoughtful person, serious-minded and here is her husband wanting to do an unserious-minded show about what can be serious things. So I'm thinking, how do I break this to her? And so for the longest time, I was thinking, this is crazy, this is crazy. And I just didn't tell her because I was afraid if she rejected it, that would be the end because I trust her judgment so much. So I just didn't tell her. I just kept working on it and think, well, if I keep working on it, maybe it'll be better. And I'll think she'll buy it better, <laughs> quicker. So I worked on it probably a year or two on my laptop, just coming up with the, the way I thought things should look, potential scripts and things like that. And finally, uh, we were li still living in Tennessee. Now see, us moving back to Arkansas kind of coincided. It wasn't exactly because of the show, but at the time, one of the things in my mind was, well, if I started a show, and I've already got a farm established here, 
it'll be starting in the middle of things. So I thought, what if, and I was thinking outside the box, what if we picked up and sold this place, which was unthinkable. I put my sweat and blood in this farm. I would never sell it. I've told people I'll never leave here. But then I started thinking, well, what if we did sell it? Where would we go? And if we found a piece of property that I could start from scratch and I could start the filming from scratch and bring the entire world, so to speak, along on the journey, I said, where would I go? My first thought was the Smokies because I love the Smoky Mountains. I love our, you know, our ancestors came from there originally. But then I thought, well, that just takes me 10 hours further away from her parents and further away from my parents. So I started thinking, what about Southwest Arkansas? What's the most beautiful spot I can think of? And it would be this area here, Kattegat, with the mountains and the clear rivers and so forth. And there's already a, a number of tourists coming to this area. So that's when I, one day I was out working, I was actually building a shed. I was going to build a little shed to keep my tractor in. And I thought, I'm going to go tell her. So I went up to the house and I got her out on the porch and I said, just what I've told you, what if we started all over? And I thought, oh, here, here, here it comes. And she stopped. She just stops. I remember the look on her face. She's just looking at the floor. And she said, hmm. It was the most positive hmm I've ever heard in my life. So that encouraged me. And then uh, ended up telling her about the show. Like I said, she's my best friend. And she is the wind in my sails. And she thought, this is good. It's a good idea. Go for it. And she's been my, she is my biggest encourager and she helps us. She's the one who fulfills orders on selling the books and the DVDs. I just couldn't do it without her or the rest of my family. Wow. Looks like you could have asked a little earlier. <laughs> I probably should have. Yeah, maybe now, you should In have. retrospect. Yeah. Well, who knew? I guess you found out. Our guest on the podcast is Gary McWilliams, better known as Pa Mac. His website, farmhandscompanion.com. Also the name of his YouTube channel, which is how I discovered you, I guess, four, five years ago. I can't remember. I, I wrote a newspaper column about your YouTube channel shortly after I discovered you. I, do you remember when that was? I, I'd like to think it might have been four or five years now. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. But I was so impressed. What you do reminded me so much of my own grandfather. It, it was, it was, he was a blacksmith and he could do the same thing as, as your grandfather. He could take nothing and make something out of it. And there is a certain satisfaction to, for me, it was just watching it be done. You know, I've, I've done a few things with the blacksmithing equipment. I have my grandfather's blacksmithing and I even went to blacksmithing school a few years ago. And just the few things I made, I mostly gave them away just because I was so proud that I did it, right? You yeah. make a knife out of a, a railroad spike and you make a steak turner and whatever else. So let's talk about what you do to prepare for shooting your show. I mean, obviously, you got to come up with a, a, a script. But I, I specifically want to ask about the stick people, <laughs> the music, and the obsession with Thomas Jefferson. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which one first? Yeah, Let's you see. pick. Starting way back before I had the show, I was writing articles. Uh, my brother was writing for Oklahoma Gardener magazine, and it's a company, state-by-state -state gardening. They have um, half a dozen different periodicals for the, each different state. Arkansas Gardening, Oklahoma Gardening, Tennessee Gardener. He got me a gig with the uh, editor writing an article for Tennessee Gardener. And so I started 
writing articles about all kinds of things. It might be an article on how to grow okri and the history of okri or gourds or squash or just whatever it was. In school, I hated writing. It was the last thing I wanted to do was write an essay. But I, I found out that if it's something you're interested in, you're fascinated by, uh, you can do it. You're motivated to do it. And once you get going, if you have an outline, you know, okay, I want to go here, I want to go here, I want to go here, here. And you form an outline, and then you put that outline in order, it kind of writes itself if you love the material. And so I was writing articles, but then uh, they wanted photos for the, for the articles. Well, I had to go out and shoot photos of my garden. But if you're writing an article on okra in January, you don't have any okra gr- growing. And so I would write my brother and email my brother and say, do you have a picture of okra or whatever? Well, I started realizing, you know, if I'm going to write these articles, I need to just go out and take pictures of the garden. And so I had, I started taking pictures of everything I was doing on the farm, everything, whether it was building a fence, digging a post hole. If there was a good shot of it, I just took it and then put it, filed it away, named it and filed it away. That way, whatever article I wrote, I could just go through and go, oh, I need a picture of kernels of corn still on the, you know, on the shuck or whatever. And so I would find it. I'd find a picture of corn worm or insect damage. I would take a picture of it. Well, when I started doing the show, uh, I bought it at the time. It was a decent enough camera. I bought it and I just started doing the same thing with video. I would go out and I would shoot footage of whatever it was. There was no episode in mind necessarily until I started doing the show. You know, really until I started doing the pole barn and I would go out with the camera and then I would know, okay, I'm going to have to start here. I need footage of this. I need a close-up of this. I need a wide shot of this. And so you start collecting that, knowing you're going a certain direction. But there might be something growing in the garden that I don't know how I'm going to use it, and I would shoot the footage. Okay, well, get several years down the road. Now I've got a massive collection of photos and videos. And so if I decide, well, I want this episode to be about a vegetable garden, just pure and simple. Well, I need all kinds of pictures of vegetables, of me hoeing or whatever, and I will start to weave the story, kind of start to write the script. By the way, you know, I I don't speak in my videos. They're just captioned. You have to read my videos, which gets on some people's nerves, but uh, they're all captioned. So I would just put together the captions and know where I'm going. But then if I get to a place where I'm talking about how I cut the cedar trees and I don't have any footage of me cutting a cedar tree, I'll panicked. What do I do? I don't have time to go out and do this now. I've got to get this done. And so it occurred to me, well, I can draw and, and I, I can draw. I used to do, there's another thing I used to do to make some extra income for my family was I would take snapshots and draw charcoal portraits, realistic charcoal portraits. Now, some of my daughters do that better than me and I, there's no need for me to continue to do it. I feel like I'm doing it through them. They're better artists than I am. And so I would do some, some of the pictures on the show are especially if I'm drawing, sometimes I'm drawing Paul Mack and I draw him realistically, but there are times where I just need something quick just to show an action or something. I started drawing these stick figures that are very cartoonish and, and kind of funny to look at. And it's so simple to do that when I need a footage of something that I don't have footage of or a photo of something I don't have photo of. I'll just sit in my living room on the couch and um, draw out one of those sketches of a stick man showing some action that I don't have. So well, it works really well. Well, thank you. By the way, I like the fact that you don't talk. That sets it apart from all the other videos where 
that's pretty much all people do is talk. You have to pay attention to what you're doing in the videos. So by not talking, you're drawing attention to what you're actually doing. I think it's that's actually a twofold. Um, it started off being just the easiest way to do it because, like I said, when I first started scripting that pilot episode, and I went back and looked at me talking, and I was reading that script, it was just, it just, I didn't like it, but it frees me up because a lot of times, sometimes when I'm doing an interview like this, I'll think later, well, why didn't I say that? That was stupid. Why didn't I? Why didn't I go here? Why didn't I go there? And so if you're outside doing a video, and a lot of homesteaders are successful at this, they're real good at it. If you're outside shooting something and you're talking, I will always go back and go, well, oh, shoot, I, I, did, I said that wrong. I, I wasn't even right when I said it. And sometimes what comes out of here is not what I'm thinking. I'll either say something wrong or I'll go, well, I didn't even cover this, and this was the main thing. But when you produce a video this way, you can just go out and shoot the footage and you're not worried about the information. Then, As you're producing the video, I have several days when it's in the production stage. I have several days to fine tune the words and to, and to say it briefer. I remember a pastor that I looked up to very well and had just delivered such great sermons. He said, the way I do it is I refine and I refine and I refine and I refine down until all I've got is this. And I think it is so simplistic. Nobody's going to get anything from it at all. And then he'll preach it and people would come up to him and say, that's the most profound thing I've ever heard. And so that's kind of been my model is just to refine it, refine it downward, refine it downward until it's exactly what I wanted to say. And I can go back and look, oh, I didn't mention this. Well, I can insert it in the captions and, and find more footage. So it's a very easy way to produce it, but then it has the side benefit of the most influential people in my life, and I include my father and even my grandpa, Paul Mack, that I really didn't, I never got to know very well. What struck me about them was they were wise men, but they were silent gentlemen, and they worked with their hands. And most of the things, my daddy, I credit him with teaching me how to use old tools and the love he just instilled for me a love for old tools and even horse-drawn implements and things like that and i remember him building things uh he too was very resourceful and he had just such big hands he didn't do a lot of talking while he was building but i was more i was just so focused on watching him and i think i learned more because he he wasn't talking kind of i don't know that, that kind of runs through my head too so it's kind of a double there's a double i guess a double reason for that I would have thought that you just thought it out exactly the way you're doing it from the very beginning, but it sounds like, like most things, you sort of find your way as you're going. Would yeah, you, stumbling through the, even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. I have long coveted the words word economy. Well, you take word economy all the way because you don't <laughs> say anything. So it's pr pretty, <laughs> pretty impressive, to be honest with you. All right. The music is toe-tapping good. Thank you. The instruments, some of them sound homemade. Yes, sir. In fact, there's very few instruments I use in the soundtrack that are not homemade. One of them is the little boing boing, the jaw harp, and it actually is in one of the display cases in my office. My mother's daddy, my grandpa on my mother's side, he was a sharecropper. His name was Paul Daniel. We called him Paul Daniel. So we have Paul Mack and Paul Daniel. Paul Daniel was the one that would wear, you know, he wore around glasses, kind of like what I wear, overalls, and he was just kind of a jack-of-all-trades, too, but an extremely, extremely good gardener. He could just look at a plant and tell what it needed, but that was his jaw harp that I use um, 
in there and there was a there's a few instruments that my brother made my brother's a musician and a carpenter in his own right he's a real carpenter i jokingly say because he's the kind of carpenter that actually uses all the little marks between the one and two and three on a tape measure (laughs) he actually builds uh renaissance instruments he's got an interesting hobby uh, he's a professor at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University. He's a science professor, got his doctorate. But on the side and for his own therapy and relaxation, he builds Renaissance instruments from scratch. And he will look at a, a picture from the Middle Ages and see them holding some instrument. And then he will, t- to the best of his knowledge, if there's any, he'll research it. And then he'll duplicate that instrument try to copy the tunings as exactly as possible and he sold those on ebay to professors of antique music antiquity but uh there's a few instruments that he's made that i play in fact if you listen to the show oftentimes you'll hear a real scratchy um to some people it's very unpleasant but it's just one of my signature sounds it's a very scratchy like an old what is it hurly-gurdy or i actually um, love it what is that it's just a simple hourglass lap dulcimer that my brother made, a pretty large one, and I just bow in it. I just tune all the strings to a G chord, and I'm bowing it back and forth, and it gives it that real scratchy sound that just fits the show so well. I call it homespun music. My family and I play bluegrass. We're a bluegrass band, but the music I do for the show, I guess it's it's kind of a bluegrassy vein, but it's... Uh, it's not quite, I didn't really know what to call it, so I just call it homespun because a lot of the instruments are homemade. I, I needed a banjo, and so I took several pieces of wood and glued them together to form a circle, wrapped deer skin around it, and made my own fretboards. I needed a bass, so I bought a wash, number three wash tub and actually made a fretboard for it so that I could actually fret the notes on a wash tub bass. I needed a more metallic banjo sound so i took a chicken water pan and turned it into a panjo i have an irish oatmeal can that i turned into a canjo this very high sounding instrument i took some gourds and i built a fiddle out of a gourd i called it a gourd diddle that's the scratchy fiddle sound you hear i made a mandolin out of another gourd and that's probably the most successful instrument i made because it actually sounded truer to what I was intending for it to sound than a lot of the other instruments. In fact, there's an article on the website on how I built it, and that gets a lot of hits from people who are in mandolin societies for some reason. I don't know if they're looking at, look at that hillbilly, look at what he did. You never know, Marty Stewart may be out there looking at that. Maybe, maybe. So we're talking to Paul Mack, Gary McWilliams, who is behind all of the wonderful videos that are on farmhandscompanion.com. And or I should say on YouTube, but the website is farmhandscompanion.com. You also have things that you sell. So let's do some shameless plugs. What, okay. What, what, what can we buy from you? Well, I've got two books, actually. Uh, one of them is uh, the one we talked about, How to Build an Old-Fashioned Pole Barn, or Building an Old-Fashioned Pole Barn. And basically, I wrote that. It's got a lot of pictures in it. It's really not blueprints. I tried to stay away from sounding like an architect or a builder because mainly I'm not either of those things. I'm just a guy who put some boards together and built a barn. But I tried to describe it in such a way that somebody who is not a carpenter can read the book and duplicate exactly what I did. And then there's another book that we haven't sold on the website yet. We're still trying to work that out. But we sell it here at the store, and I sell it when I speak at workshops or homestead conferences. It's called Common Trees for the Farm or Homestead. And I took about 32 
trees that are very common throughout the South and a lot of parts of the United States, as a matter of fact. And I took a, one summer, I went around taking a picture of each of these trees that I could find throughout the woods. I took a decent picture of the leaves and a decent picture of the bark. It's not only is it an identification book to where a young man or woman starting out can actually go out in the field with a book as an identification guide and figure out what a tree is, either in winter or in summer, you can look at the bark. But then under each different tree, I'll write a description of the characteristics of the wood, whether the, you know, the grains are interwoven, does it split easily? And then underneath is the mo- what I think is the most useful thing. I'll talk about what they're good for on the farm, like you know, black locust, good for ground contact wood. You can use it for fence posts. You can act- it'll actually come in contact with the ground and is very resistant toward rot or insect damage. But also, for instance, you could take that wood if you needed bearings for a, an old grinding stone to sharpen your axe with. You could actually make wood bearings with it because it, it's such a tough and dense wood. So I take all those different woods and talk about what they're good for, making spoons, anything from making spoons to carving little you know, figurines and things to fence posts or what best to use for your pole barn. Just about anything you can imagine on the farm or homestead. And then uh, I've got a coloring book, and this is something I haven't put on the website either, but I started drawing pictures of old-time scenes, and I've got a coloring book that we sell, and it's the coloring book of my dreams. Old-fashioned things from making a yoke to uh, uh, skidding logs with oxen to plowing with a mule, even cutting up pork for the smokehouse. There's all kinds of old-fashioned things for kids to color. It's called A Southern Traditional Farm. And then my mother has a book. A sharecropper's daughter. We've been begging her for years to write her memoirs down, and uh, her stories are just very memorable. Some of them make you cry. Most of them make you laugh. But uh, she actually went so much further than we had in mind because I was just thinking, Mom, just write the facts down, get the facts down, put them on paper, and at least we'll have them. Well, when she finally got serious about it two or three years ago, she actually wove this thing into a beautiful story. I mean, the way she ends a chapter just brings a tear to your eye, sometimes a tear of joy and sometimes a tear of sadness. She tells the story of her family growing up. She was the youngest of several kids, and they were very, very poor. Her mother had some heart issues, and at the same time, her mother's health is declining. I won't give the end away, but at the same time, her mother's health is declining their position in life and their means of living is continually getting better. So it's a wonderful, wonderful story. I know I'm prejudiced, but it is it is now my very favorite book in my entire collection. Well, I have ordered your mother's book, and I have ordered your whole barn book. So oh, thank you. Well, thank you. You're more than welcome. I'll be glad to autograph those for you, but it might make the value go down. Please do. We've talked about all of the others, but the Thomas Jefferson thing, you quote Thomas Jefferson a lot. Yes, I do. I so do. He's, not he, the, he's not the only guy who was into farming. I mean, Ben Franklin, there were, if you're going to pick founding fathers, there were others, George Washington. Uh, mm-hmm. But I've been to Monticello twice. Have you been to Monticello? You know what? I have never been there, oh. but I've read so many things about it, I feel like I have. Monticello is Thomas Jefferson's home. I, I don't need to go into it other than to say it is in Charlottesville, Virginia just stunning to see the craftsmanship he had a lot of the same things that your grandfather had he had he had a blacksmithing shop he had is that the connection to thomas jefferson he reminded you of your grandfather um 
I have a close connection with the first four presidents, each one of them. And maybe Jefferson is a, every time I'm reading something about each one of those guys, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and Madison, whichever one I'm reading about, I identify with, and they're completely, four completely different personalities. But they had something in common. Each one of them loved their farm and loved gardens. Two of them were planters, you know, big time farmers, Washington and Jefferson. But Madison and Adams, their farms weren't quite as large, but they still loved it. Uh, And Jefferson kind of holds a special place in, in my heart just because of his political views. I mean, he was very, very ultra conservative. Of course, he, you know, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. It's one of the greatest documents humans have ever produced. He would just sit around in his mind inventing things and redesigning Monticello. I don't know how many times he redesigned his home and would come up with all types of ideas for his garden. He loved gardens, and, and I'm fascinated by the Lewis and Clark expedition. I had a friend who's got a his name is Scott Rayley, and he's out of Alabama. He's got a Rayley farm and field, and he sells open-pollinated corn, a few varieties, but he does it very well. And he's very excited. He loves corn and uh, loves talking about it. He sent me some of Jefferson's Sweet and Shriveled, and it's actual descendant, uh, descendants of the corn that Lewis and Clark sent him back and that he grew at Monticello, and that's what I'm growing this year. But um, there's wow. a really good book. I, I I didn't write it. I didn't come close to writing, but it's, it's by a lady named Andrea Wolf. Andrea or Andrea, I'm not sure, but it's called Founding Gardeners, and it's a book I highly recommend. It takes those first four presidents, and it really does a good job of showing that not only was gardening their pastime fascination, their curiosity, uh, something that quenched their curiosity, but they believed that gardening was the means that would eventually make America what it would come to be because we were on the North American continent and we, they, there was land out there that, you know, that's why Jefferson sent Lewis and Clark is what is out there. They really believed that if they went far enough, they would see a woolly mammoth at some point. They just didn't know what was out there. They, this was land that was capable of growing huge trees. And all they knew in Europe, you know, they, they didn't have the type of growth in Europe that we saw here. So they were, they were wondering, what is this land capable of? And leading up to the revolution, a lot of these guys were writing friends back in Europe and saying, oh, by the way, send me as many seeds as possible. And in their minds, they were thinking, look, if we ever cut ties, we're going to need a way. We're not industrial yet. We're going to need a way that we can become great, a great power. And they saw that, that, that way being agriculture. But aside from it being just something practical that they could use to forge a great nation, they loved it. They loved it. Each one of them loved it, and especially Jefferson. He's just kind of a a political and a gardening hero. I I don't know that I would take his theological advice, but he's a political and gardening hero of mine. Our guest on the podcast has been Gary McWilliams, better known as Pa Mac, star of the YouTube channel Farm Hands Companion the website farmhandscompanion.com. I highly recommend you watch his videos, you buy his stuff, and you go to Caddo Gap, Arkansas, because that's the next place I'm going to go when I go back home to southwest Arkansas to visit relatives. I'm going to head up your way and show up and buy some blackjack gum. Oh, it'd be great to see you. You come on up. Hey, thanks for being on the show. Yo, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, John.